2 Kings chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots, a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and saw, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and, they, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. May God bless the preaching of his word. There's an old adage that seeing is believing. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must place our faith in many things that we cannot see with our naked eye. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This morning we're in a portion of scripture that teaches us the spiritual realities of our faith. The unseen God is watching over us and protecting us. We have been emphasizing as we've been working our way through these latter uh, weeks of Second Kings that God is revealing himself. God is making himself known through Elisha. This morning we see that the unseen God makes himself known. In the passage before us, we literally see God's protection of his people. And we discover that that protection is very real. And so my desire is this morning that God would open our eyes to see the truth of 
God's word that we might have a better understanding and a greater faith as we place our trust and confidence in things that we do not see, but yet are true realities. So let us pray. Almighty God, I commit this time unto you and ask for your spirit to work among us. Uh, Lord, uh, teach us, guide us, open our hearts and minds to your truth. Uh, Lord, help us increase our faith. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the passage opens, we find that God repeatedly is sparing Israel. The occasion for sparing Israel are the raids that are taking place by the king of Syria with his army. Verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, the manner of God sparing Israel was that Elisha would inform the king of Israel of the military plans of the Syrians. If you look at verse 9. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. So Elisha would send word to the king of Israel what the plans were for the onslaught of the Syrians and warn the king of Israel and his army as to the movements of the Syrian army. So God spared Israel, verse 10, and the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus, he used to warn him. And we find out that God spared the people repeatedly at the end of verse 10. Thus, he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So the king of Syria's response to God having saved Israel Israel is quite interesting. The king of Syria is disturbed, thinking that he has a traitor in his midst, in verse 11. The mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, namely that his plans kept being discovered and given to the king of Israel. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you now show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So he calls his people together and he says, where's the mole? Where's the rat? Who is the person who is giving up our military plans to the king of Israel? Well, the truth of the matter is that it was God who was giving over the military plans to the king of Israel through the ministry of Elisha, verse 12. And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. We would love to know who this nameless servant of God is. We are not told, nor are we informed as to how he knows that Elisha is the one who is revealing the king's plan to the king of Israel. Perhaps This was one of the soldiers that had been with Naaman when Naaman traveled to Israel and had met Elisha and had witnessed the work of the prophet in healing Naaman. We don't know. We're not told. We're simply given the fact, and more importantly, the king of Syria is told that this is Elisha the prophet who is revealing the plans to the king of Israel. So the king makes plans to capture Elisha, verse 13. And he said, go, 
and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. Now, there are a number of ironies here in this plan. The first is the king has to send out spies to know where Elisha is. Uh, Elisha knows where the king is without any spies, but of course the king has to send out spies to find out where Elisha is. Secondly, the king thinks he can take Elisha by surprise. When the king had been unable up to this point to have any kind of military maneuvers without Elisha disclosing them. So you can see that there is a measure of futility in this act, and yet, what recourse does the king of Syria have? And so uh, he tries to find out where Elisha is, and he finds out that he is in Dothan. He is in Dothan. So the troops come to take Elisha by surprise, verse 14. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So they they come under the guise of darkness and uh, they have been able to completely surround the city. Things look bleak. But we find out that God thwarts the plans of the kings of Syria. As the scene opens... Elisha is in a perilous situation, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. The situation seemed hopeless. There would be no way of escape. No one could come in. No one would go out. They were surrounded. And understandably, Elisha's servant panics. And he says at the end of verse 15, Alas, my master, what shall we do? What are we going to do? Look, this army is all around us. And Elisha assures his servant that God will protect them. Verse 16. He said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What does that mean? More with us than are those with with them. Well, Elisha prays that God would open the eyes of the servant so the servant could see God's protection. Verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. God opens the eyes of Elisha's servant to see God's protective army, verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's one thing to hear of God's protection, It's quite another to actually see it, and he sees it. But notice what the servant sees at the end of verse 17. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I would point out to you that Elisha prays, but he does not pray for the Lord's protection. Rather, 
He prays that the servant sees the Lord's protection. What he sees is a heavenly army that is surrounding Elisha. But I want you to note that Elisha does not summon the angels in chariots of God. Rather, he asks that they be revealed. They were there all the time. They were already surrounding Elisha. They do not come in answer to Elisha's prayer, but rather they are revealed in the answer of Elisha's prayer. The servant sees what he previously could not see. That is, he could not see the Lord's protection. But what I want to emphasize this morning is the reality of what the servant sees. The servant is not hallucinating. The servant is not seeing a a mythical army. He is not seeing something that doesn't exist, but rather he sees what really does exist. That is the presence of an unseen spiritual realm. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and just reflect on that thought. Or I think we have a real struggle with the existence of spiritual entities, of angels and spirits that we cannot see. The world as we perceive it has three dimensions, length, width, and depth. I think we're all familiar with two-dimensional forms, such as you see in a photograph, where you can see width and length, but you can't see depth. Then there are the 3D movies and the 3D glasses that you can put on, and uh, then you see depth. You see things coming out at you, and you can perceive what you could not see before, uh, merely that depth. Einstein proposed and revealed to us that there is a fourth dimension, which can be perceived but not seen, and that is time. String theory postulates that the universe is comprised of as many as 10 dimensions. Well, I can't speak to that, nor do I particularly care to speak to that. But I want you to think with me about a dimension in which material things exist but cannot be seen like angels, for instance, that God allowed in many different instances in the scriptures to appear to various people at various times. And in that appearance, and I've talked often about uh, during Christmas time, the angel's appearance to the the shepherds, and also the angel appearance to Zechariah, and they just appeared, poof, they're there. But it isn't that they come in an instance, but rather they're just revealed that what was hidden is all of a sudden made known. They could see the angelic realm and hosts. There are angels that are around us that that we cannot see. In this account, the servant does not experience an hallucination. That is not seeing something that does not actually exist. Rather, He experiences a revelation. 
That is, what he formerly could not see, he is now able to see. Now, let me illustrate this for you. There are things that we cannot see, even as there are sounds that we cannot hear. A dog can hear high-pitched noises that we are unable to hear. Take, for example, a dog whistle. A dog whistle emanates a sound that is too high for us to hear. But a dog can hear it. And a dog can react to that high-pitched whistle. It is every bit as much in existence for us as it is for that dog, even though we can't hear it. It is simply an outside of our uh, range of uh, auditory to be able to, to understand and to distinguish. Nevertheless, if you blow the dog whistle, a sound is made. There are things that cannot be seen with the human eye that do exist. You know, for a lot of, for a lot of years, there was speculation about uh, germs and amoeba and other things that uh, were thought to exist, but you couldn't see it with the naked eye. And then all of a sudden, we have been able to develop uh, microscopes they can magnify to the nth degree, and all of a sudden things are now visible to us when one time they were not. We were all familiar with CAT scans and other things, of ways in which we can see what normally we cannot see. Well, there is a spiritual realm that's every bit as real as this physical realm, every bit as real as this pulpit that I'm sitting behind. Uh, Philip Ryken, in his commentary, writes, and I quote, There is a realm of reality, more actual, more factual, more substantial than anything we can see, hear, touch, taste, smell in this world. It exists all around us, not out there somewhere, but here. There are legions of angels at our disposal for which Earth's forces have no countermeasures. God and his squadrons of angels are everywhere around us and encircling fire. We cannot see them with our natural eyes, but whether we see them or not, they are there. The earth is crammed with them, end quote. I am in full agreement with what Riken is saying. It is a real entity. There is much that we cannot see. And the scriptures encourage us repeatedly to be asking God to help us to see what we cannot see. Now, when I say that, I don't think that all of a sudden God is going to enable us to see the angels that are immaterial to our, our sight. But I do think that God gives us understanding and appropriation and faith in ways in which we do not presently possess it. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about praying for the Ephesians. And he says that uh, having heard of their faith, he prays. And this is what he prays. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope to which you are called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Paul says, I pray that you would see those truths. And I submit to you that it's really, really important for us to be praying constantly that God would be revealing his truth to us in his word, that he would let us see, that he would let us understand. Now, with that in mind, let's continue to work through this text. We find out that God blinds the eyes of the Syrian army in order to protect Elisha and ultimately to protect the Syrian army as well. When the Syrian army comes to take Elisha by force, Elisha prays, verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord. And notice what he prays. He says, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Elisha asks God to blind these Syrian soldiers when they are coming against this heavenly host that is surrounding Elisha. You understand what would have happened to that army had they attacked that heavenly host. They, they would have been slaughtered. They would have been eradicated. They didn't have a chance. So Elisha prays that God would blind them. And one might wonder how a whole army could be struck with blindness and yet navigate all the way to Samaria. Well, there are two different Hebrew words for blindness. The first one is the one we normally associate with physical blindness, that is, an inability to see anything at all, to be in total darkness. The second word is a blindness of perception, to be blind with regard to understanding. We talk about people who are spiritually blind, who cannot see the truth. It is blindness in this second sense that is described in our text of these soldiers. So when he asked for them to be blind, it isn't that all of a sudden light disappears and all they see is blackness and they're, they're feeling their way around, but rather he is asking to alter their perception, their understanding of what is taking place. Think of the account of the earlier servant. The earlier servant had his physical sight, that is, he could look out and he could see the army, what he could not see was the heavenly host. He had to have that sight opened. Well, in this text, the blindness is not a physical blindness, but it's a blindness that's going to frustrate their purpose and so that they cannot achieve their end. These soldiers have physical sight, but they were blind to the truth and blind to the danger that they were in. They were blind to where they were and where they were going, verses 18 and 19. And when the Syrians came down against them, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me. 
and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Elisha was able to lead them approximately 10 miles out of their way to the capital city of Samaria. Once in the capital city, Elisha prays that God would return their understanding to them. Verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. God answers Elisha's prayer. Verse 20. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. This is no less a miracle than if they had been stricken with an absolute physical blindness. And it is no less a miracle when their eyes were opened to the truth of where they were than if they had been physically blind and healed so they could see the city. This was an incredible work of God. Now the biblical narrator has some irony for us. We are encouraged to see what is going on. That is to understand all that is taking place. Notice verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. The Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And now these words, and behold, and behold. Now we're asked to see. Now we're asked to look. Now we're asked to reflect upon they were in the midst of Syria. Look what God was able to do. Look what God is able to do. So the question this morning is, are we able to see the great truths in this text? Do we really have the eyes of faith to believe in God's unseen world? When we we think about heaven, do you understand that that's a real place? That isn't just some kind of myth that we tell each other to make ourselves feel better. And it isn't just a metaphor for blessing or for peace or constant sleep or rest. But it's a real realm, it's a real place, it's a real existence in which we are going to be with each other forever and ever, which there are a heavenly host, which all those people who have died before us in faith are going to be present, which the lamb who is slain before the foundation of the world is going to be there. And we're going to see and we're going to look upon the one who was pierced. All of that is real. All of that is true. All of that presently exists. And we need more and more faith to really grab hold of that. And when I mean to grab hold of it, I mean to really embrace it so that it grants us the comfort, it grants us the peace, it grants us the hope, it grants us the encouragement that it is intended to produce. You see, the perspective for the servant changed dramatically when he could see not only the army of the Syrians, but he could see the heavenly host. That brought an incredibly different perspective to life. Our ability to see spiritual truths bring an incredible different perspective to life. God mercifully spares the Syrians. The king of Israel 
wants to kill the captives. Look at verse 21. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He's excited. Here is this whole Syrian army, helpless before him. Shall I kill him? The king of Israel is forbidden to kill him. As in verse 20, you shall not strike them down. It goes on to say the soldiers who had been captured in battle would not have been allowed to, uh, would have been allowed to live. Look at verse 22. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? The answer is no, he wouldn't have. He would have made them slaves. These should not be treated worse. In fact, they are to be treated better. They are to be treated with kindness. Look at verse 22. He answered, you shall not strike them down. Do you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink. Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink. This is in keeping with both the teaching of the Old and New Testament. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Or you'll be heaping coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. <coughs> Those verses are quoted and repeated in Romans chapter 12, which talks about the fact that I will repay, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So Romans 12, 19 and 20 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is, you make them accountable. You will teach them of my mercy and my grace. Also, what is noteworthy in this passage is not only were the soldiers allowed to, to live, but they were not made slaves either. For notice at the end of verse 22, it says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink. And now this, and go to their master. And go to their master. Just let them go home. Let this Syrian army walk away. Don't detain them. Don't imprison them. Don't enslave them. Let them go home. Let them go home. Why? Why? These were the enemies of Israel. These were men who came to seize Elisha. Men who we're going to treat Elisha with this kind of compassion or mercy, I'll tell you. But yet, send them home. Send them home. Why? Well, for one reason is because God is Israel's protection. He will watch over them. Notice verse 23. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. 
Now these words, and the Syrians did not come again on raids from the land of Israel. For a period of time, they have peace and respite. Can you imagine the conversation that must have taken place between these soldiers and the king of Syria when they return without Elisha? And he says, why don't you have Elisha? And they tell him the story of what, what took place. This Syrian king already knows about Naaman, already knows about the power of God. God wanted to make himself known. God wants to make himself known not only in his power, but also in his grace. Also in his mercy. Also in his compassion. He wanted to reveal to, first of all, Elisha. Secondly, the servant. Thirdly, the king of Israel. Fourthly, the people of the city of Samaria. And fifthly, the army of the gracious God that we serve, who watches over us and who protects us and keeps us. As we think about this passage, in conclusion, once again, God is making himself known. Known to Elisha, known to Elisha's servant, known to the king of Israel, known to the people of Samaria, known to the king of Syria, and known to us as this story, this account comes down to us today. You know, Second Kings is written after the fact. It was written for generations to come to know the kind of God they serve and, and what God is able to do. It's important for us to understand that Second Kings is written for us. And I, for one, firmly believe that when we refer to the Lord of hosts, that's referring to the God, the God of heavenly armies. One of the choruses we sing talks about God's heavenly armies. I, I believe in guardian angels. I believe in an unseen world. I believe in a heaven. I believe in a hell. And I believe in a God who is gracious, who reveals these truths to us. And I believe in a God who can open our hearts and minds that we might understand more fully and more completely. And we learn how important prayer is in association with that understanding. It is Elisha's prayer that the servant's eyes would be opened. It's Elisha's prayer that the Syrian's army would be blinded. It's, God, it's Elisha's prayer that once again, that once in Samaria, that the army of the Syrians is open to see where they are. As much as we believe these truths, I submit to you we need to understand them and see them more fully. We long for the day when Corinthians says, we will see him as he is. And we shall know him even as we are fully known. That there's going to be this experiential knowledge of God. I believe that we need more of an experiential knowledge of God.
Job was a man of faith. Job had an incredible relationship to God, believing in the faithfulness of God, believing in the resurrection, saying that, yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him or serve him. And in my flesh, I will see God. But he went through a host of very difficult situations, as you know, the book of Job. But at the end of the book of Job, in Job chapter 42, after all of these experiences that Job has, and then God restores Job's health and his wealth and all the things that were taken from him. The declaration of Job at the very end of the book is, I repent in sackcloth and ashes, for he said, I heard of thee with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Now my eye sees you. I spoke of your goodness in the past. I believed in your goodness in the past. I trusted in your goodness in the past. And it was your goodness who brought me through. But he said, I spoke of things that I really didn't understand. I know what it is as a pastor to speak of things that I don't understand. They're too high. They're too lofty. They're too deep. Pray with me that God would help us to see more clearly, more fully, more, more richly, more deeply, so that the real comfort, the real truth of the Word of God might be embraced as God opens our eyes to see his goodness. Even as the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I believe every time we open the scriptures in our devotions and in our study, that should be our prayer. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for your spirit to work among us. Teach us. Open our hearts and minds to your truth. Give us confidence in an unseen world. Help us, Lord, to believe in your protection and your care over us. Give us assurance of heaven, of acceptance with you, of a Savior who's risen from the dead. of your protection of us in all things. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.